Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. This is Autism Awareness Month, and there's some good news. Joining me in studio, Dr. John Constantino, Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics and Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine. Steve Houston is President of Compass Communications and the father of a son with autism. Thanks, gentlemen, for being here. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Doctor and Steve, good to have you back again. It's a return visit. Doctor, let me begin with you. If my, if my numbers are correct... It would appear that the diagnoses of autism has decreased by about 50% over the last 18 years. Is that right? And if so, why? Sorry, the... the, the diagnoses of autism. Well, have uh, over leveled the last... Uh, they, they seem to have leveled off to some degree. The new mm-hmm. reports from the Centers for Disease Control will be coming out some in a few weeks, actually. Um, but that's after a period of a very remarkable acceleration in the prevalence of autism over the years. Do we know the reason for either the acceleration or the leveling off? Well, so what we think is going on is that autism has actually always been with us and that a lot of the increase in prevalence over the last 20 years has been greater recognition, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. There are many children who were assumed to have a very low cognitive ability or what's called intellectual disability, uh, who actually had autism spectrum disorders and were not diagnosed as such and were assumed uh, to be delayed because of cognitive problems rather than having autism. And that's a big mistake to make because those children can be educated in ways that wouldn't be Im- implemented uh, if they're assumed to have the wrong condition. And then, and then also milder uh, manifestations of the autism uh, syndrome have now been recognized in children, and, and, and it's understood what their impact on children actually is. Steve, could you give us some sense of, of what your own situation was as you were learning that your son was autistic? I think uh, John was born in 1995, which I think was the first inkling that they, they started to do early interventions with these kids. So he's part of that first generation um, where they're doing the early interventions by 2000, I think autism was diagnosed in one out of 150 children. Today, it's like one out of one, one out of 68. But what we found along the way with early intervention, and when you have a kid with autism, you're like thinking, what is the possibility? You have no idea what it is. Um, but he had physical, occupational, social, cognitive therapies, um, therapies I'd never heard of before. Um, and as a result. Um, John is what I would call somewhat atypical of kids on the spectrum because John is pretty verbal. Um, a lot of kids on the spectrum, they don't, they don't talk and, and they have very poor language skills. John's also pretty friendly and outgoing. Uh, a lot of kids on the spectrum are extremely withdrawn and some have serious behavior issues. But the one thread that seems to hit everyone on the spectrum is um, – my son John just struggles to socialize. Um, you can see him try to do it, and then you'll just see it stolen by autism. How did you first uh, become aware of this? What did you see? What were the symptoms, signs? Well, again, John was somewhat atypical because John was born microcephalic, which is a smaller head size. Um, we didn't know that in the time, at the time until we participated in a, a study with WashU. Um, and this was two years ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, that John had Wren-Penning syndrome, which is extremely rare. It's almost entirely confined to boys. It isn't a cause of autism, but it is a contributor to it. 
He also had another genetic defect within him. And all of this was uncovered because we've unlocked the genetic code. Um, but when we first discovered it, uh, you know, we, you have no idea what the path is ahead of you. Um, and you struggle to figure out what you should do. Should my wife quit her job and I'll work full-time with my son? Or should we just get him in these programs and us both working? Because let's face it, we realize we're going to have to do some generational giving to support John once we're gone. Steve mentioned the genetic uh, code doctor, and that seems to be an area of research that is promising at the moment. Very promising. So about one-third of all cases of autism spectrum disorders are now able to be identified with respect to a major genetic cause. And that has only become possible in the last five years or so. And the costs have come down to the point where uh, those kind of determinations for a child with an autism spectrum disorder can be made uh, for uh, either fully covered by insurance or even uh, just for a few hundred dollars. And that's uh, in comparison to all the other testing and all the other things that go on. Uh, fully one-third of the children in the population with this condition can be typed, as it were, with respect to a genetic contributor to that condition. So so that is the key to this genetic research, is actually identifying the degree of the condition? Is that correct? Well, it's one key because what happens is there are many, many roads that can lead to autism. Uh, Imagine in in, uh, John's case that he went for 20 years without knowing that, uh, without his family knowing that a major cause of his condition, a partial cause of his condition, was this particular rare genetic uh, abnormality. And the treatments, the prospects for uh, specific targeting of these syndromes biologically, medically, it requires having groups of children or groups of families get together who have similar pathways to the condition rather than trying to mix apples and oranges and have everybody try to uh, respond to the same kind of uh, treatment. So one thing that's happening uh, in that realm is that the uh, biological therapies and even gene editing now, which is remarkable uh, for some conditions, uh, are going to be able to be applied to specific children and families uh, who would never know that there was a prospect for treatment if they didn't get identified and typed. So the, what, is, what is the potential beyond that I mean, is there any way to correct the uh, condition? So at present, uh, gene editing is only something that is in our very near future. There are some diseases that are actually treated that way. So uh, the way it works is that a virus is introduced into a body. It goes into all the cells of the body, and literally uh, it injects uh, the, the machinery to excise or cut out the wrong genetic code and insert the correct genetic code. I mean, it's like Star Wars, and it's being done for certain diseases right now. hasn't yet been applied to autism, but that's not very far away. If this works and proves to be viable, would it be helpful to someone like John, Steve's son? It potentially could be viable and and effective even in a young adult who has a condition like this. And still, we're a number of years away from making this uh, exact enough and effective enough. And uh, we don't know yet how many individuals with autism spectrum conditions will be able to be treated in this way. But again, we're just at the threshold of being able to do that. And it is being done in other human diseases. Steve, this has to be very exciting to you, someone who makes his living by spreading the word about autism and the research that's being done on it and also having an autistic child. 
It it is, but I I would I would caution you know we've done this at Autism Speaks that um, you know we a lot of people talk about cures we're we're not talking about cures at this point um, uh, we are talking about greater understanding greater awareness of autism um, and those on the autism spectrum I've told a lot of people that you you know if if I could give my son John a pill that would cure him of his autism. I would certainly do so, but I really would miss the John that's changed me. I mean, it, when you have a child with a developmental disability, it opens up, um, it opens you up to so much more about life and the people you meet and the incredible compassion that people have um, to people on the spectrum. The doctor, we hear that a lot. Well, and one one of the remarkable things about what Steve just said is that. What we understand now about autism is that it's not an all-or-nothing thing, and it blends into the in, to the general population. And really, uh, autism is part of us all in a certain way. And uh, even very mild kinds of manifestations of autism uh, enable children to do – some children and some individuals to do extraordinary things and to make remarkable contributions. And so thinking about where autism – uh, as a variation in brain development is one that is adaptive to an individual. So, for example, if it helps them focus, if it helps them stick to a task, if it helps them really adhere to uh, something that's going to make them more successful versus when it's too much and it starts to really take a hit on a person's able to you know, direct their own course and think in the way that they want to and, and, and uh, make their own uh, sort of decisions. That's when the impairment is something that we really want to try to treat and, uh, and prevent. Yeah. That's Dr. John Constantino of Washington University School of Medicine. We're talking autism with him and with Steve Houston, the father of a young man who is on the spectrum. We have to take our break now. We'll do that, come back and continue this talk. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation on autism with Dr. John Constantino and Steve Houston. Doctor, in, in getting ready for this program, one of the things I saw, and I thought perhaps it was in connection with this genetic research that's going on, concerns eye contact and the gaze and how one might uh, influence the other. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, autism has always been known to be remarkably characterized by differences in the way individuals make eye contact with other human beings. It's one of the characterizing features of autism. But it turns out that going back to the uh, around uh, 2012 and 13, there were early indications that one could pick up long before autism develops. So autism usually develops and, and is most apparent by 18 months mm-hmm. to two and a half years of age. But it became clear that for children who are going to develop autism, particularly those born into families who are already affected by autism, that their allocation of eye gaze towards the social world around them, to people, to faces, was falling off or eroding by two months of age. And this gave us an opportunity to think about whether a very, very early sign of this condition was this erosion in eye gaze. And to make a somewhat of a long story short, 
what we found was, in fact, that this particular characteristic of falling off of uh, allocation of eye-gaze towards the social environment is very much one of the building blocks of autism. It is strongly, strongly genetically influenced. But that particular uh, aspect of development alone is not enough by itself to cause autism. It has to combine with something else. And we're right now we're looking for the one or two or three other factors. But we have developmental therapies now that are specifically targeting this, and we're moving those therapies much, much earlier in development and having better outcomes as a function of applying developmental therapies to children. And the, the earlier and the more intense and the longer duration, the better the children's outcomes are, not only in terms of language development, but social development, the things that Steve was talking about, even their intelligence is all improving. And so this is one of the great you know, headlines of autism science right now that we're understanding how to have a better impact on outcome. How would you reorient the gaze? I think that's the expression I heard, reorienting gaze. Yes. The, the, the methods that are used right now are to motivate gaze. So to turn up in a way that doesn't naturally happen, even with the most loving families, sometimes you have to really reward and turn up the the sort of reward value of making the right gaze to a young child. Mm -hmm. And so to do this, it often involves exaggerated aspects of play or building up the sort of uh, back and forth routines with young children that they are uh, happening where a therapist is in that child's face or in that child's, within that child's gaze and really positively, strongly, repeatedly rewarding them for orienting to them. But Another way to do this is to think about the idea that for some children, it may not be so much that gaze to a face or a social input uh, is not so rewarding. It may be that they're just getting distracted by objects. Mm -hmm. And so another aspect of this, and our, our world is surrounded by distractions and getting more so, uh, objects and sounds and all of that. And so the other aspect of this is trying to minimize distractions and to really uh, funnel in on uh, orientation towards faces and gaze. These, these days with so many devices yes. out there, that certainly is a part of it. Uh, Stephen, your own experience, was the gaze something that you noticed early on with John? Uh, you know, it's so long ago, it's, it's hard to remember. I, I do remember it took him forever to crawl. It took him forever to walk, it seemed, and stand. Um, but what I, what you're saying, Dr. Constantino, what's interesting is I do remember when John was really young, he would do what we'd call grazing. He would, if we went to Chuck E. Cheese, oh my gosh, that's just so much sensory overload that he would be one place and another place running back, wouldn't be playing with anything, just going to where the lights are or wherever the activity was. And I think he was just having pro problems processing it. Um, Today, John, um, and we've talked about this, he has almost more of the, a tip, the typical autism traits. He's very regimented in what he does. He uh, likes to stack toys neatly in a row in the morning, every morning. He's got routines that he will not diverge from. He's got commands, um, ways of interacting with me that he will not diverge from. A typical example is if I'm taking some John somewhere in the car, I'll tell John to fasten his seatbelt and he will say, oh, no, every time and complain about it. But that's part of his routine. It's not that he's not going to fasten it. 
He's just got to say that, and then he fastens his seatbelt. So he gets – he is almost more regimented in the things he does now than he was when he was, when he was a little kid running all over the place. Doctor, uh, some children do develop a, a little more slowly than others. Right. What, what advice would you have for parents who say that my child isn't crawling, as, as, as uh, was the case with John, uh, yet, and perhaps he should be, or walking, or any of these things? Right. What advice do you have for them as to when they should you know, seek some sort of uh, attention for the problem? Well, the earlier the better, and, and the, any developmental delay uh, can be very hard for a parent to disentangle what aspect of this is from uh, motor development, what, ha- what aspect yeah. is language, what aspect, what aspect is social, what aspect is cognitive. And specialists like child neurologists, developmental pediatricians, child psychiatrists who are trained in this kind of work uh, and psychologists who are experienced this way are the kinds of clinicians who can help disentangle what are the relative contributions of each of those developmental aspects of a delay and then to specifically target them. And our developmental therapies are getting more specific and all children in the state of Missouri from birth to three are eligible for the First Steps program, which is a um, uh, if, if their delay qualifies at a certain level of disability or impairment. And this is uh, something that we really encourage parents to uh, get to their uh, respective uh, regional centers for developmental disability and get into those programs so that children can get the therapies that they need. But there is no chart saying a child should be doing this by age one, two, three, or four. Well, there are charts, and and there are big red flags for certain developmental delays. Uh, For example, you know, we'll say that every child by the age of 18 months should have at least two or three words other than mom and dad. Some children develop those words much sooner and some a little bit later and still do okay. But when you see some of those milestones that aren't being met, that's when you really, you know, uh, want to respond to a red flag like that. And we're, again, we're getting better and more specific at the therapies for these things. What, what other kinds of research are taking place right now? So one of the things that we're trying to track down now that we know that there are specific genetic factors that can influence uh, autism spectrum disorders. We're very interested in not only how those, but how other factors that we can't measure as well are transmitted and running in families. One of the concerns that people have now is that if there is autism running in the family, what is the risk to the next generation? And there isn't great data on that since the autism explosion of of prevalence of 20 years ago. And so one of our highest priorities and one that we want as many families as possible to participate in, in the region and nationally uh, is to go to our website, uh, which is they can find it through uh, by SDS Lab, Social Developmental Studies Lab at Washington University, and uh, and there's a link there that can they can uh, click just for five or ten minutes to give us the information on their families so that we're because right now we're trying to count and track how uh, autism is transmitted to the subsequent generation. That'll give us lots of information, not only about risk to new moms and families who uh, have autism running in the family, but also new insights into the kinds of autism that can occur when multiple, multiple genetic factors are at play and you can't specify any 
uh, singular cause for a condition in a family. We will put a link to that website on ours at stlpublicradio.org. Uh, Steve, uh, what uh, the work that you're doing with the uh, autism community and research and, and what have you, um, what's going on right now in terms of your, what you're looking at? What events are happening that uh, will keep this subject alive and in people's minds? Well, we have a chef's gala coming up uh, next week. I believe it's on the 25th, if I'm correct. Um, and that's to raise money for Autism Speaks. We have a walk in October. Um, and we really want to get the word out to anybody who, you know, if you think you have a child on the spectrum, um, one of the first places you should go to is autismspeaks.org. There are more than 40 toolkits uh, which people can look up, and it gives you a whole array of information, how to deal with a meltdown, how to get your child to go to the dentist, how to potty train the child, how to uh, work in a, um, an education plan, all of these advocacy-type uh, type information that will help people better navigate autism because one of the thing, great things about Dr. Constantino's studies is that the earlier you can start that intervention mm-hmm. and the, more you, the, the better outcomes you're going to have. We'll put a link to that site as well on our website at stlpublicradio.org. A final thought, Doctor, if we have to break this up. Well, I want to underscore Steve's point. The Autism Speaks website is like the American Heart Association for Autism. And there's a ton of information on the Internet and not all of it is great. Uh, A lot of it's very well-intentioned. But Autism Speaks has terrific, terrific information for families uh, across the board in terms of being able to recognize signs and symptoms, uh, how to navigate the system of care across all the different states, how to navigate the transition of development to uh, from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. Uh, and it really is uh, of superb and very vetted, very well-vetted source. Important information indeed. Yes, it is. I want to thank you both so much for being with us today, Dr. John Constantino of Washington University School of Medicine and Steve Houston. Uh, great to see you. Good luck with you and your family. Uh, thank uh, you. Steve. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.